What is a cover-up? What is a cover-up? Well, if you look at the definition, you'll come away with at least two possibilities. The first one, the first definition is this. Any action, stratagem, or other means of concealing or preventing investigation or exposure. So under that definition, it's a cover-up, someone covering up wrongdoing, perhaps something of illegality that they're now covering up. The second definition that you will find is any of various women's garments, as loose blouses, jumpsuits, captain's sarongs, worn over a swimsuit, exercise clothing, or the like. A cover-up, okay? So we're not going to really talk about that second definition tonight. We're not going to really be dwelling, spending any time on that particular definition, although that might be some interesting conversation for the ladies. And maybe a spring cover-up of some kind <laughs> would be talked about and discussed in that sense. We want to really talk about the first, that first definition uh, of a cover-up. When someone says cover-up, we usually think of someone trying to cover up, conceal the discovery, usually of wrong or illegal behavior. And we might think of, your mind might even be drawn to the, the, the great historical cover-ups of, of, of great illegalities that have been committed uh, in business or in politics and government and on and on, the list goes on and on. But a cover-up is something that is constructed so that a person who is guilty of wrongdoing won't get caught. The question really is this, what do you do when you do get caught? When the cover-up doesn't cover up, the cover-up don't, don't work. It didn't take. What do you do then? And this is really the reality for every single person. Our cover-ups don't amount to much when it comes to hiding and concealing the sin that we have committed. The Bible tells us that we've all sinned and we've fallen short of God's glory, his standard of righteousness. And there is no cover-up that can keep that from his eyes. His eyes are like a blazing fire. Read that in the book of Revelation. There's nothing that can cover up. He, it does describe this wool of ha, uh, hair like wool, but you can't pull the wool over Jesus' eyes because his eyes are like blazing fire. Yeah, you read it for yourself there in the book of Revelation chapter 1. He sees everything. But God loves us too. Amen. God loves us, and he has a plan, not for you to have a cover-up, but for you to be covered. God has a plan, not for you to have a cover-up, but for you to be covered. And we will see that tonight in our text as we finish up chapter 3 of Genesis. We'll see where that plan that God has is set into motion and the foundation of it laid right here in Genesis 3. We're going to look at the remainder of the curse of sin. Of course, Adam and Eve have sinned. They have disobeyed God. They've rebelled against God. And now they have fallen into sin. Their eyes have been opened. They know that they're naked. And now we're going to see, the. we're going to go through 
and look at the, the full picture of the curse of sin and what Jesus, what God is going to do about that in covering sin for those who will call upon his name. So let's first look at the curse of sin and let's pick it up tonight in Genesis 3 and let's look at it in verse 16. It says this, to the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And then to Adam he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I have commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. So after last week, incredible message, what you need to do is probably go back and listen to that one again. Go back on the podcast, Hope for Humanity was the name, and look at that because we really dealt with the, the fall and the curse and the curse that was specifically directed towards the serpent, the Nakash, and how woven into the midst of the curse that was upon the Nakash, the Satan, there was this first gospel, this good news. Remember that? The proto-evangelium in that first gospel we talked about and how God had a plan for crushing the head of the serpent through his seed that would come through the woman and of course, we're talking about Christ. The seed of the woman in that text in Genesis 3.15 is Christ, and he is the one that came into the world and crushed the head of the serpent. His, the head of the serpent is now under the feet of Christ. Amen? So now, in the midst of the curse, he turns, and he turns to the woman. He says, to the woman. Now, we when you look at the curse as it's laid down towards the woman, and we'll get to the men in a second, but ladies first, right? Okay? So to the woman, he says, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children, and your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. The curse toward the woman is centered on specifically childbirth. And remember... And we have to go back a little bit. We have to go back and we want to keep all these things fresh in our minds as we go through. Remember there was a mandate that was given to man, to mankind. Let me put it that way, to mankind. And uh, there was this mandate and the mandate was to, to rule over the earth, to subdue it, to have dominion over the earth. And then there was another part to the mandate and that was to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth. So they were to rule over the earth, they were to subdue it, have dominion over it, but they were also to fill the earth, to be fruitful and multiply. And of course, Adam wasn't going to be able to do all that by himself, especially the be fruitful and multiply part. You know, you got to have two to accomplish that uh, particular outcome. And for the woman, the curse is, is laid down concerning this particular aspect of her help in accomplishing the mandate that was given by God. 
So the curse toward the woman is centered on childbirth and towards that part where she's going to have a major role to play in this being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth. Uh, so one of women's primary tasks of the mandate would be now multiplied sorrow and pain upon it. This childbirth, this whole aspect where she's going to be giving birth to, to, to babies, she's going to be giving birth to children, and the, the, the pain and the sorrow of the whole thing is just going to be multiplied. Notice that it says the sorrow and pain of childbirth would be multiplied. Now first, sorrow really has come into the world as a result of sin. But I think pain, I think that there's, there, there is actually good pain. There is a pain that is a pain uh, that is kind of that warning pain. It's kind of like the pain that you feel when you touch, um, you know, fire or the hot stove. Um, and, and you touch the hot stove and it's like, ah, don't touch that. Move your hand. That's a good thing. You thank God for that type of pain because it's like, move your hand. If you don't move your hand, it's going to get really hot. And it's going to burn. It's going to hurt. And so there is a good pain. But then there's the, this part of the curse where there's multiplied pain. There's multiplied pain. It's really, really probably, shall we call it that, excruciating pain. And excruciating pain is interesting because the term excruciating is actually taken from the, the agony and pain of the cross. So it's, it's interesting. But pain is going to be multiplied. There's sorrow that's going to be involved. So sorrow and pain. Sorrow and pain would be multiplied in childbirth. And this is, this is exactly what sin and rebellion bring into our life. Sorrow and pain. So we need to look at it. Everyone here, we need to look at it. When, when temptation comes, when the temptation is coming, and it is full on and, 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 and it's the heat of the moment, we've got to remember that, that giving in to temptation and, and, and sinning it brings sorrow and pain. The Bible does say it's pleasurable for a season. But in the end, it's sorrow, pain, destruction, and death. That's what sin brings into our lives, sorrow and pain. Every woman who's given birth knows a little bit about our text tonight. Amen? If you've given birth, you're here tonight, God bless you. God bless you ladies who've done this. And you've cried out. In those pangs, in the contractions, in those moments, in the moment as it came upon you suddenly, and it's like, oh, here we go. And it got painful. I guess the only thing that they've, they've described to the, to the level of pain of childbirth, and I don't know if it's equal to, greater, or less than, but they say breaking your femur bone. Is, has anybody broken their femur? No, that's the biggest bone in the body right here in the thigh. But I, I, I hear that that's pretty excruciating and um, right up there. But we're going to give it to the ladies on the childbirth thing. Okay, we're going to give you, we're going to let that stand as just the most excruciating pain. But every woman who cries out in pain from the pangs and contractions of childbirth is evidence of the curse of sin that is upon man. There's ladies right now in travail at all the local hospitals 
right now. Some of them are getting the epidural, but some of them are not getting the epidural, and they are suffering and hoping to get through it quickly because it is a tremendous pain. But that pain and that sorrow, those pangs and contractions of childbirth is evidence of the curse of sin that is upon mankind. And this is continuing to play out until the end. Now, the next phrase that we see in the curse directed towards the woman deals with the fact that as a result of sin and the curse, woman would be subjugated under man. Look at it there in verse 16. He says, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Now, remember when uh, God created man and woman and they came together and there was this perfection, this wholeness in, in the creation, there was this perfection of it. And now there's, there's, this is kind of hand, being handed down as the curse. Not that there wasn't a federal headship of the man, and we get it, you want to get into the whole headship issue uh, that is delineated by Jesus and by Paul in his writings that deal with the headship, and, and that it's actually a covering, and it actually fits in with the message tonight, the idea of a covering in the household, and that covering is established by the covering of the Lord and, and given to the man as a covering over everybody in the household. And that's the way it was. But now there's going, to be, there's going to be kind of this fight for power. There's going to be this jostling back and forth. There would be this subjugation of the woman. And throughout history, women have been subjugated as a result of the fall. They've been subjugated under men. They've been trampled by men. They've been, in many cases, in many cultures, abused by men. In many cultures, viewed no better than property or, or even like the cattle that a man would own. It would be, here's my cattle and here's my wives, right? And this is the subjugation that has been brought about as, as a result of sin. Commentator Barnhouse said this about this particular passage, and I know it's a difficult passage for us to deal with even in the 21st century. He said this, it's difficult for women in Christian lands to realize the miseries of their hundreds of millions of sisters in pagan lands where the lot of women is a little above that of cattle. And it's hard for us in Western culture, and certainly here in America, where we have a lot of the freedoms, and shall I say it, that have been delivered because of the influence of Christianity in Western culture. Yes. Yes. And because of, the, of the, the, the freedoms that have been brought about uh, by uh, Christianity and what the Lord Jesus has done for women, that most women in Western cultures uh, enjoy a better life than that. They enjoy a freedom and an, and an equality in the society that doesn't exist across. In fact, most women do not live under the freedoms that you ladies here live under. Most women in the world. There's 7 billion uh, people in the world and um, a slight majority of those are women and most of those women do not live in those freedoms. Under Jesus, some of the effects of the curse are relieved, and it has been the Christianizing of society that brought rights and dignity to women. 
where the woman is rightly covered by the headship of the man in marriage, the young woman is under the headship covering of her father and then given away in marriage so that there is a proper order from the creation between the sexes. The, the curse has interrupted that and brought about a fight for rule and dominion in the household. And we see this throughout history. But through Christ and the freedom he brings, the creative order can be and is res restored. The point of this part of the curse is that sin brings sorrow and pain and it brings strife. It brings strife in relationship. Now, to the man, moving on, to the man in verse 17, then to Adam he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake, in toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. To the, to the man, cursed is the ground. Cursed is the ground. You'll remember there was this kind of uh, phrase, this sentence there in, in Genesis chapter 2, and it talked about there in the going back into that early stage of creation when the earth was kind of in that desolate uh, stage. It was that, that time when it says in chapter 2 that there was no man to till the ground, right? I don't know if you caught that, if you remember that. But now there was a man to till the ground. There was a man to tend to the garden, to, to, to bring the, 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 the garden and subdue it and, and all of that. And now the curse to, directed towards the man is that that part of the job that was kind of directed towards him was going to be tougher. There was a curse to the ground. Because of Adam, there is a curse upon all creation, really. Before the curse on man, the ground only produced good, and after the curse, it will still produce good, but thorns and thistles will come faster and easier than the good fruit. Now you say, were the thorns and thistles produced from the curse? I don't think so. I think that the rose always had a thorn, but I think this text, the curse, is that the thorns and thistles were going to come easily. And anybody who's ever tried to garden knows this, right? You try to plant a garden, and you try to uh, get things going in the garden, and, and the weeds and the thorns and the thistles grow real easy, and sometimes it's difficult to get the stuff that you want to grow, get, get that going, and until you meet somebody that's got like a super green thumb, right? You meet these people, and they're just, you know, they're like magicians out there in the garden. You go out there, and their garden is just pristine. And uh, actually, my grandfather, uh, my dad's dad, was a green thumb. He was a gardener. In fact, he was a nurseryman and worked for the Botanical Gardens in Washington, D.C. In fact, if you've ever been to Washington, D.C., uh, right there in front of the Capitol, there's a... There's a uh, botanical gardens there. And uh, that's where he worked. That's where he worked. And he was, he, every time I went over to their house, he was always pruning the rose bushes and all that good stuff. So there was probably thorns and thistles, but the curse is that those are going to come 
more readily, more easily. And so this cultivation of the ground was going to be tougher. It was going to be uh, super laborious. He says, in toil you shall eat of the ground. Adam worked before the, co- the curse, and it was joy. And now work has, there's this curse to the ground and this element of a curse to the ground. And so with pain and weariness and, and this toil will be a part of the work. In, in the sweat of your brow you will eat bread until you return to the dust that you were brought out of because you were brought out of the ground, you were made of the dust, and to dust you shall return. And so the, 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 the curse upon man, the curse upon the ground and the labor of bringing forth from the earth. The final curse upon man promised this final curse of dust you are and to dust you shall return this promise that there would be an end of his toil and labor on the earth. Why? Because his end would be death. Physical death would catch up with him. And for those of us who are delivered and saved, we know that to be delivered from this body is to literally be delivered from the body of death and into the very presence of God. But there was this, uh, the wages of sin is death, right? And so that, that debt would be paid from a physical standpoint. And then we move on into the latter half of this particular section and we get into the covering of sin. One more verse before we get into the covering of sin. Uh, Verse 20, and Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. And so this is the first time we come to the name Eve. Uh, We have the creation of woman in chapter two and we just have her called woman. But here uh, we have the name of Eve and It's actually in the Hebrew, it's Eva, which means life. And Adam named her Eva uh, because she is going to be the mother of all the living and ultimately that one that's going to come and bring redemption and pay the price and do the work of redemption that that God had already uh, told them about in that curse towards the Nakash, towards the serpent in Genesis 3.15. But moving on, we want to get to the covering of sin. So we had the curse of sin. There's this curse of sin that mankind is born with, born into. But God wants to deal with the curse of sin. He wants to deal with sin. And so there's this idea of the covering of sin, not the covering up, but the covering of sin. And let's pick it up, verse 21. It says this, Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin, and clothed, clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil, and now lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is a very interesting passage, but it really deals with the covering of sin. This idea that God is the one who covers sin. We can try to cover up our sin, but God is the one who wants to step into the situation and cover our sin, really atone for it. The verse there is verse 21. He says, also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. So we see that it is God that covered 
the nakedness and shame of Adam and Eve. This verse actually, Genesis 3.21, take a look at it there. Just leave it up there on the screen for a little while. It is a, it's a picture for us of the salvation of man in many, many ways. And we want to take a look at it. The Lord was really handing down the curse of sin upon them, but he was also preaching a message to them. Here, as he clothes them in these skins, these tunics, he's preaching a message, not in words, but in action. The verse lays the foundation of how sinful man or woman could be reconciled to their creator and be saved from the ultimate curse of sin, which is death. How's that? The act of God covering the man and the woman shows the foundational principles of salvation. When God, the Lord God, clothed Adam and Eve, this shows us the fundamental principles of salvation, and this is absolutely amazing. The foundation principle, when you have tunics of skin that were made, you have to kind of look at the story and look at what's being told to us. So if tunics of skin are made and, and delivered to them by God, what does that mean? It means that animals died. Animals died in the process of these tunics of skin being given to Adam and Eve. And that, what that shows is it shows a lot, actually. The first thing, if you're taking notes, if you want to, this is really good stuff right here. So this is a good part to take notes if you want to. This is the first thing it shows us. It shows us the foundational principle of the shedding of blood. The shedding of blood. And we see the principle throughout Scripture. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Hebrews 9 verse 22 says this. You'll see it on the screen. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And so here, in the covering of Adam and Eve, in the covering of man, in the covering of their sin and shame, we see the shedding of blood. And this becomes a picture, this becomes a typology of the shedding of blood for the remission of sin, ultimately foreshadowing the, 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 the blood of the lamb that was shed for the forgiveness of sins. Amen? It also shows the concept of substitutionary atonement. Substitutionary atonement. What's that? Substitutionary atonement is this. It means the innocent dying in the place of the guilty. So what do we see here in verse 21 of chapter 3? Yeah, you can go back to that verse. Um, in, in verse 21 of chapter 3, we see animals, innocent animals dying for the guilty party, Adam and Eve. And so we see the shedding of blood, this principle, but we also see the idea of substitutionary atonement. The shedding of blood of the innocent was a covering of the life of the innocent over the life of the guilty. Now this is important to understand because if you're going to understand the gospel and we're going to get ready to, we're getting ready to celebrate Easter. We're getting ready to celebrate Palm Sunday and Good Friday, and you're going to see crosses, and people are going to be putting crosses all over their Twitter accounts and their Facebook, and what's it all about? What it is all about is right here in our text tonight, okay? What it is all about 
is the shedding of blood and the substitutionary atonement for the guilty party. And so there was an innocent life, innocent blood was shed to cover the life of the guilty. And this is exactly what happens for us in the atonement of Christ. It's the blood of Christ that covers us and his life covers our guilt and our shame and we are washed clean in the blood of the lamb. We have a substitutionary atonement. Now the word atonement in the Old Testament is the word kapoor. And we discover the word through, throughout the Old Testament, throughout the law. And we have the word kapoor. And uh, the, the, when the sacrifices were made, an animal was killed, the blood would be spilt, and the blood of the animal made atonement for the sins of the worshiper. The, the, the blood would be smeared upon the, the horns of the altar and there would be a portion of the blood that was taken into the, into the Holy of Holies and sprinkled upon the altar, upon the, the, the Ark of the Covenant. But the, the atonement is kapoor, which means to smear, to wipe, or to cover. So atonement is to cover. Kapoor equals cover. Now, in the law, God instituted the Day of Atonement, right? The Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, the Day of, of, of Covering, the Day of Covering. And, and so, and I'm one of these, and I'll never be able to prove this, but I would bet money, if I was a betting man, I would bet money that the exact day that God did this was the day that became in the calendar that became the Day of Atonement. I, 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 we're going to ask him when we get to heaven. But the Day of Atonement was instituted in the law, and it was a day once a year where Israel's high priest would sprinkle blood that was shed of an innocent animal. The, the, the priest would take the blood into the Holy of Holies in front of the Ark of the Covenant, sprinkling that blood on the mercy seat to make atonement for the people's sins. And the atonement, what's that? The covering, the covering of the sins of the people before God. Now, how could God cover the, the sins of the sinner? How could he do that? There's many people that have problems. They, 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 they bristle at this part of the gospel because they have a problem. Well, how, could, how can God just forgive sins and let people go free? I mean, people should be punished. And these are the exact people that don't want to be punished. But this is the argument, okay? I've read the arguments. Trust me, I've read, I've read them. And, and, and how could God just let you know, someone go free in that sense? Because the Bible tells us that he's a just God. So how does he not contradict his own justice by letting the sinner go free, by, by covering the sin of the sinner? To, to phrase it this way, how could he be merciful to them and still be just? The Lord God clothed Adam and Eve with skins. And in order to have these skins, animals were slain, Life was taken, blood was shed. And in this way was a covering provided for the fallen and ruined sinner. And the application of the type is obvious 
because it's the Lamb of God who comes along. All this was the type. This is a type that becomes, this is the precursor to the type of the sacrifice, the Passover lamb, the, 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 the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, the scapegoat and all that. We don't have time to get into all that, okay? But it's a type of that leading up to and foreshadowing the Lamb of God who would then cover the sins of the people. So how can God be just and cover people's sins? Because he sent himself into the world to take the punishment upon himself. And so the justice of God is supplied. The covering of sin is available. And that's why the Bible tells us that he can be the just, that he's just and the justifier of anyone who comes to him for salvation. When you look at the picture of salvation, it's covering. And it's incredible. And it's exactly what happens in every person's life who responds to Jesus. When you responded to Christ, what happened to you? The blood of the Lamb covered you. You, you came under the covering, under the atoning work of the Lamb of God. And you were covered. You were clothed. And just as Adam and Eve were given skins of tunics tunics and covered it's exactly what god did for you and it's exactly the same picture that we see even in the new testament in one of jesus parables where he's talking about this you're very familiar perhaps jesus most famous parable the parable of the prodigal son it was it was the lord god who furnished the skins made them into coats and clothed Adam and Eve, they did nothing about it. The text, just, the text tells us that God, the Lord God did this. The Lord God did this. They did not do anything. God did it all. They were entirely passive. The same truth is illustrated in the parable of the prodigal son. When you look at the parable that Jesus told, the prodigal son went out and wasted his inheritance on what? riotous living. He went out and just went into full-blown rebellion and just did whatever he wanted to do. And he ran out of all of his money and he hit rock bottom. And he said to himself, as he was literally in the gutter in the trash heap, he said to himself, I'd rather be a servant in my father's house than live in this garbage. And so he picked himself out, out of the garbage and he began to walk home. And what did the father do? Pick it up, Luke 15, verse 20. It says this, And he rose and he came to his father, but it, when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Verse 22, you'll see it on the screen. But the father said to his servants, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. What is it that the Lord does for us? What is salvation? It is literally the Lord covering us from the ruin of our sin and our shame, the destruction of our lives. He covers us. He clothes us. He says, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand. Put sandals on his feet. 
See how God loves us and how he covers us? See how he wants to cover us? And so we can rejoice. And when we come together, what is it that we're singing about? We talk about being lifted up. We talk about what God's done in our lives. What has he done? He's covered us and he's clothed us. He's welcomed us home as the prodigal son. He's put the most beautiful robe on us and a ring on our hand and sandals on our feet. He's welcomed us and he's ran to us. And so as the prophet said in Isaiah 61 verse 10, you'll see it on the screen. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Amen? In the end, there really are only two religions. You say, there's all these religions, right? You go to House of Blues. You go to the House of Blues. Go to any House of Blues. You been to the House of Blues? Seen a concert? Yeah, every time I'm at the House of Blues, I always notice this. You look, at, look up on the top of their stage, they have this, they have some icon from all the major world religions. And it's just kind of an interesting kind of a thing to witness. But in the end, there's really only two religions, it's been said. There's the religion of fig leaves, and there's the religion of God's perfect provision through Jesus Christ. Amen. How's that? You're either trying to put it together by man-made concoction of sewing fig leaves together to cover your nakedness and your sin and shame, or you're accepting the covering and the clothing and the salvation of God that can only be found in and through Jesus Christ. Amen? So he clothed them, and he put the tunics on them. Verse 22 Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man. Stop right there. This is really where we see paradise lost. Yeah, just a shout out to Milton, right, from the... 16th century, uh, the, the great English author of Paradise Lost, but this is where it happened, where paradise was lost. And man, Adam and Eve were, they were driven out of the garden. They were driven out. Even in this driving out, though, we see the mercy of God. You say, what? We just read these verses about how he was driving him out of the garden and didn't want him to eat of the tree of life and driving him out. Paradise is lost. You say, where's the mercy? The mercy is in the fact that even though paradise was now lost, they were blocked from eating of the tree of life in their sinful mortal state. He said, lest they partake in their, in their death, in their sin, partake of the tree of life. You see, here's, here's a part of the confusion, and, and we've got to come back. Remember in the first message I talked about the crayon, uh, crayon picture and the 4K picture? This has baffled many people and, and caused you know, wonder and question for many people for years because they've read their Bibles, and it says 
that God said that you should not eat of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, for in the day that you eat of it, you will die. And you read, you keep reading, and they ate of it, and then you don't see them keel over and die. And so what's going on? Either there's another interpretation here that's a valid interpretation, or something's awry here. Okay? What was brought on man at, at the eating of that fruit, that forbidden fruit, and the disobedience that they partook of was a spiritual death that came upon them and bringing about a mortality in them. And so there was a mortality that was now their state, and spiritually they are now dead. How do we know that? Because Paul tells us, right? And the Bible tells us that you were dead in your trespasses and sins, that you're dead, that you're dead. We sing it. Every other song is about how he makes us, he brings us to life. Bring what was dead. We sung it tonight several times. The theology of what is th this is about, that, that what happened to Adam and Eve spiritually was that they died. And so lest they eat from the tree of life in that fallen mortal state, they were driven out of the garden. And God put cherubim in front of the garden with flaming sword to guard the way to the tree of life. And so we see the mercy of God. God protected Adam and Eve from the horrible fate of having to live forever as sinners by preventing them from eating from the tree of life. Through God's plan, spiritual life would be available to all who call on his name and ultimate glorification to an immortal body that is promised to all as a final state of all believers. Now, the guardians of the way, not the guardians of the galaxy, the guardians of the way to the tree of life, the cherubim. We talked about this a little bit earlier in the chapter because we connected the dots for you that the Nakash was one of these cherubs, one of these heavenly beings, these holy ones, these very powerful spiritual beings that are called cherubs. And you just have to put the Victorian picture of the little baby, cute little baby with the wings and the little cherub. No, 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 that ain't a cherub. Trust me, that ain't a cherub. Read your Bibles. That ain't no cherub, okay? That's a cute little artsy picture from whatever century, 18th century or whatever, but it's, it's not Bible because the Bible tells us that the cherubim are of the most powerful beings that God created, okay? And he put cherubim as guardians to the way to the tree of life. Whenever you see cherubim in the Bible, these are the holy ones who cover or guard the throne of God. Remember when God said, you were the cherub who covered, who covered, right? So this whole, this whole message is about covering. You were, the, you were the cherub who covered. You were one of those guardian angels, throne guardians, right? Guarding the throne of God. Well, let's, I want to fast forward. I don't know how many years, 
But I want to fast forward to the end of the book. And I want to connect the dots from Genesis 3 here tonight to Revelation 22. When, when we're in glory, when we arrive at that final state that God is going to bring about, this is what we see in Revelation 22. Pick it up, verse 1. John was showed this. And he showed me a pure river of water, of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Verse 2. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river, ooh, here we are, here's this tree, that Adam and Eve were just forbidden, were guarded from going back to eat from once again, was the tree of life which bore 12 fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The, tr- the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Verse 3. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. Okay, I got I to wrap this up. I don't even have time to really do justice to this, Okay. What did we just read? We just read that the tree of life, that there's this connection somehow to the tree of life and to the throne. That the tree of life, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. Right? And there shall be no more curse. Because now we can, we're, we're with the Lord and we can come right up to the tree of life. We can come right up to the throne. We can come right up to the altar of God. So there's really a a threefold connection that we need to make in Scripture here, that the tree, the altar, and the throne, there's this major connection. The altar is the throne. We know that from the Old Testament. The very place that the atonement was made was also the throne of God in the midst of Israel, right? It was called the mercy seat. It was the seat where it was God's throne in the midst of the people. But it was also the altar where the atonement was made, where the covering was made. And then this throne and the Lamb of God shall be in it, in and around this tree. And so there's this connection. The altar where atonement was made, was literally the throne of God, and we, because of Jesus, can boldly approach the throne of grace. Now I want to draw your attention back to the beginning of verse 3 here. And there shall be no more curse, right? There shall be no more curse. Jesus delivers us from the curse of sin. He's the one that can do it. This curse that we've just read about in Genesis 3, this is where there's no more curse. The curse has been dealt with and it's been done away with. How did he do it? How is it that Jesus can bring us to a place where there shall be no more curse? How did he do it? This is how he did it. He became a curse. There shall be no more curse because Jesus delivered us from the curse by becoming a curse for us. And this is what we're taught in the New Testament. 
He became a curse for our sakes. We see the principle in Galatians 3.13. You'll see it up on the screen. Paul said this to the Galatians. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. The law stated, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus was hung on a tree. He became a curse. He became a perfect sacrifice so that he would break the, 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 the hold of the curse and bring us one day into that place where there shall be no more curse. And the principle of this verse, Jesus becoming a curse for us, thereby releasing us from the curse is seen in this, that Jesus, in becoming a curse, dealt with every point of the curse. And I have just a couple minutes to walk you through this. Give me 90 seconds here. Sin brought pain to childbirth. And no one knew more pain than Jesus did when he, through his suffering, brought many sons to glory. Sin brought conflict, and Jesus endured great conflict to bring our salvation. Thorns came with sin and the fall, and Jesus endured a crown of thorns to bring our salvation. Sin brought sweat, and Jesus sweat, as it were, great drops of blood to win our salvation. Sin brought sorrow. And Jesus became a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, to save us from the curse of sin. Sin brought death, and Jesus tasted death for everyone, that we might be saved. Amen? Amen. And so we see that there shall be no more curse. Why? Because he became a curse, and he endured every point of the curse in doing his work of atonement, that work of covering. And so in the end, man is left with basically two choices. Are you going to try to cover yourself? You're going to have a cover-up. Are you going to allow the Lord to cover you?